This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. All Things Considered by G. K. Chesterton. Section 5 The Modern Martyr. The incident of the suffragettes who chained themselves with iron chains to the railings of Downing Street is a good ironical allegory of most modern martyrdom. It generally consists of a man chaining himself up and then complaining that he is not free. Some say that such larks retard the cause of female suffrage. Others say that such larks alone can advance it. As a matter of fact, I do not believe that they have the smallest effect one way or the other. The modern notion of impressing the public by a mere demonstration of unpopularity, by being thrown out of meetings or thrown into jail, is largely a mistake. It rests on a fallacy touching the true popular value of martyrdom. People look at human history and see that it has often happened that persecutions have not only advertised but even advanced a persecuted creed, and given to its validity the public and dreadful witness of dying men. The paradox was pictorially expressed in Christian art, in which saints were shown brandishing as weapons the very tools that had slain them. And because his martyrdom is thus a power to the martyr, modern people think that anyone who makes himself slightly uncomfortable in public will immediately be uproariously popular. This element of inadequate martyrdom is not true only of the suffragettes. It is true of many movements I respect and some that I agree with. It was true, for instance, of the passive resistors who had pieces of their furniture sold up. The assumption is that if you show your ordinary sincerity or even your political ambition by being a nuisance to yourself as well as to other people, you will have the strength of the great saints who pass through the fire. Anyone who can be hustled in a hall for five minutes or put in a cell for five days has achieved what was meant by martyrdom and has a halo in the Christian art of the future. Miss Pankhurst will be represented holding a policeman in each hand, the instruments of her martyrdom. The passive resister will be shown symbolically carrying the teapot that was torn from him by tyrannical auctioneers. But there is a fallacy in this analogy of martyrdom. The truth is that the special impressiveness which does come from being persecuted only happens in the case of extreme persecution. For the fact that modern enthusiasts will undergo some inconvenience for the creed he holds only proves that he does hold it which no one ever doubted. No one doubts that the nonconformist minister cares more for nonconformity than he does for his teapot. No one doubts that Miss Pankhurst wants a vote more than she wants a quiet afternoon and an armchair. All our ordinary intellectual opinions are worth a bit of a row. I remember during the Boer War fighting an imperialist clerk outside the Queen's Hall and giving and receiving a bloody nose but I did not think it one of the incidents that produced the psychological effect of the Roman amphitheater or the stake at Smithfield. 
For that impression there is something more than the mere fact that a man is sincere enough to give his time or his comfort. Pagans were not impressed by the torture of Christians merely because it showed that they honestly held their opinion. They knew that millions of people honestly held all sorts of opinions. The point of such extreme martyrdom is much more subtle. It is that it gives an appearance of a man having something quite specially strong to back him up, of his drawing upon some power, and this can only be proved when all his physical contentment is destroyed, when all the current of his bodily being is reversed and turned to pain. If a man is seen to be roaring with laughter all the time that he is skinned alive, it would not be unreasonable to deduce that somewhere in the recesses of his mind he had thought of a rather good joke. Similarly, if men smiled and sang, as they did while they were being boiled or torn to pieces, the spectators felt the presence of something more than mere mental honesty. They felt the presence of some new and unintelligible kind of pleasure which presumably came from somewhere. It might be a strength of madness, or a lying spirit from hell, but it was something quite positive and extraordinary as positive as brandy, and as extraordinary as conjuring. The pagan said to himself, If Christianity makes a man happy while his legs are being eaten by a lion, might it not make me happy while my legs are still attached to me and walking down the street? The secularists laboriously explain that martyrdoms do not prove a faith to be true as if anybody was ever such a fool as to suppose that they did. What they did prove, or rather strongly suggest, was that something had entered human psychology which was stronger than strong pain. If a young girl, scourged and bleeding to death, saw nothing but a crown descending on her from God, the first mental step was not that her philosophy was correct, but that she was certainly feeding on something. But this particular point of psychology does not arise at all in the modern cases of mere public discomfort or inconvenience. The causes of Miss Pankhurst's cheerfulness require no mystical explanations. If she were being burned alive as a witch, if she then looked up in unmixed rapture and saw a ballot-box descending out of heaven, then I should say that the incident, though not conclusive, was frightfully impressive. It would not prove logically that she ought to have the vote, or that anybody ought to have the vote, but it would prove this, that there was for some reason a sacramental reality in the vote, that the soul could take the vote and feed on it, and that it was in itself a positive and overpowering pleasure, capable of being pitted against positive and overpowering pain. I should advise modern agitators, therefore, to give up this particular method, the method of making very big efforts to get a very small punishment. It does not really go down at all. The punishment is too small, and the efforts are too obvious. It has not any of the effectiveness of the old savage martyrdom, because it does not leave the victim absolutely alone with his cause, so that his cause alone can support him. At the same time it has about it that element of the pantomimic and the absurd, which was the cruelest part of the slaying and mocking of the real prophets. 
St. Peter was crucified upside down as a huge inhuman joke, but his human seriousness survived the inhuman joke, because in whatever posture he had died for his faith. The modern martyr of Pankhurst type courts the absurdity without making the suffering strong enough to eclipse the absurdity. She is like a St. Peter who should deliberately stand on his head for ten seconds and then expect to be canonized for it. Or again, the matter might be put this way. Modern martyrdoms fail even as demonstrations because they do not prove even that the martyrs are completely serious. I think, as a fact, that the modern martyrs generally are serious, perhaps a trifle too serious, but their martyrdom does not prove it, and the public does not always believe it. Undoubtedly, as a fact, Dr. Clifford is quite honorably indignant with what he considers to be clericalism, but he does not prove it by having his teapot sold, for a man might easily have his teapot sold as an actress has her diamonds stolen, as a personal advertisement. As a matter of fact, Miss Pankhurst is quite in earnest about votes for women, but she does not prove it by being chucked out of meetings. A person might be chucked out of meetings, just as young men are chucked out of music halls, for fun. But no man has himself eaten by a lion as a personal advertisement. No woman is broiled on a gridiron for fun. That is where the testimony of St. Perpetua and St. Faith comes in. Doubtless it is no fault of these enthusiasts that they are not subjected to the old and searching penalties. Very likely they would pass through them as triumphantly as St. Agatha. I am simply advising them upon a point of policy, things being as they are. And I say that the average man is not impressed with their sacrifices simply because they are not and cannot be more decisive than the sacrifices which the average man himself would make for mere fun if he were drunk. Drunkards would interrupt meetings and take the consequences. And as for selling a teapot, it is an act I imagine in which any properly constituted drunkard would take a positive pleasure. The advertisement is not good enough, it does not tell. If I were really martyred for an opinion, which is more improbable than words can say, it would certainly only be for one or two of my most central and sacred opinions. I might perhaps be shot for England, but certainly not for the British Empire. I might conceivably die for political freedom, but I certainly wouldn't die for free trade. But as for kicking up the particular kind of shindy that the suffragettes are kicking up, I would as soon do it for my shallowest opinion as for my deepest one. It never could be anything worse than an inconvenience. It never could be anything better than a spree. Hence the British public, and especially the working classes, regard the whole demonstration with fundamental indifference. For while it is a demonstration that probably is adopted from the most fanatical motives, it is a demonstration which might be adopted from the most frivolous. On Political Secrecy Generally, instinctively, in the absence of any special reason, humanity hates the idea of anything being hidden. That is, it hates the idea of anything being successfully hidden. 
Hide and seek is a popular pastime, but it assumes the truth of the text, Seek and ye shall find. Ordinary mankind, gigantic and unconquerable in its power of joy, can get a great deal of pleasure out of a game called Hide the Thimble, but that is only because it is really a game of See the Thimble. Suppose that at the end of such a game the thimble had not been found at all. Suppose its place was unknown for ever. The result on the players would not be playful, it would be tragic. That thimble would hag-ride all their dreams. They would all die in asylums. The pleasure is all in the poignant moment of passing from not knowing to knowing. Mystery stories are very popular, especially when sold at sixpence. But that is because the author of a mystery story reveals. He is enjoyed not because he creates mystery, but because he destroys mystery. Nobody would have the courage to publish the detective story which left the problem exactly where it found it. That would arouse even the London public to revolution. No one dare publish the detective story that did not detect. There are three broad classes of the special things in which human wisdom does permit privacy. The first is the case I have mentioned, that of hide-and-seek, or the police novel in which it permits privacy only in order to explode and smash privacy. The author makes first a fastidious secret of how the bishop was murdered, only in order that he may at last declare, as from a high tower, to the whole democracy, the great glad news that he was murdered by the governess. In that case, ignorance is only valued because being ignorant is the best and purest preparation for receiving the horrible revelations of high life. Somewhat in the same way, being an agnostic is the best and purest preparation for receiving the happy revelations of St. John. This first sort of secrecy we may dismiss, for its whole ultimate object is not to keep the secret, but to tell it. Then there is a second and far more important class of things which humanity does agree to hide. They are so important that they cannot possibly be discussed here. But everyone will know the kind of things I mean. In connection with these I wish to remark that, though they are in one sense a secret, they are also always a secret de polenchelle. Upon sex and upon such matters we are in a human Freemasonry. The Freemasonry is disciplined, but the Freemasonry is free. We are asked to be silent about these things, but we are not asked to be ignorant about them. On the contrary, the fundamental human argument is entirely the other way. It is the thing most common to humanity that is most veiled by humanity. It is exactly because we all know that it is there that we need not say that it is there. Then there is a third class of things on which the best civilization does permit privacy does resent all inquiry or explanation. This is the case of things which need not be explained because they cannot be explained. Things too airy, instinctive, or intangible. Caprices, sudden impulses, and the more innocent kind of prejudice. A man must not be asked why he is talkative or silent, for the simple reason that he does not know. A man is not asked, even in Germany, why he walks slow or quick, simply because he could not answer. A man must take his own road through a wood, and make his own use of a holiday. And the reason is this, not because he has a strong reason, but actually because 
he has a weak reason because he has a slight and fleeting feeling about the matter which he could not explain to a policeman which perhaps the very appearance of a policeman out of the bushes might destroy he must act on the impulse because the impulse is unimportant and he may never have the same impulse again if you like to put it so he must act on the impulse because the impulse is not worth a moment's thought all these fancies men feel should be private and even fabians have never proposed to interfere with them now for the last fortnight the newspapers have been full of very varied comments upon the problem of the secrecy of certain parts of our political finance and especially of the problem of the party funds some papers have failed entirely to understand what the quarrel is about they have urged that irish members and labor members are also under the shadow or as some have said even more under it the ground of this frantic statement seems when patiently considered to be simply this that irish and labor members receive money for what they do all persons as far as i know on this earth receive money for what they do the only difference is that some people like the irish members do it i cannot imagine that any human being could think any other human being capable of maintaining the proposition that men ought not to receive money the simple point is that as we know that some money is given rightly and some wrongly an elementary common sense leads us to look with indifference at the money that is given in the middle of ludgate circus and to look with particular suspicion at the money which a man will not give unless he is shut up in a box or bathing machine in short it is too silly to suppose that anybody could ever have discussed the desirability of funds the only thing that even idiots could ever have discussed is the concealment of funds therefore the whole question that we have to consider is whether the concealment of political money transactions the purchase of peerages the payment of election expenses is a kind of concealment that falls under any of the three classes i have mentioned as those in which human custom and instinct does permit us to conceal i have suggested three kinds of secrecy which are human and defensible can this institution be defended by means of any of them now the question is whether this political secrecy is of any of the kinds that can be called legitimate we have roughly divided legitimate secrets into three classes first comes the secret that is only kept in order to be revealed as in the detective stories secondly the secret which is kept because everybody knows it as in sex and third the secret which is kept because it is too delicate and vague to be explained at all as in the choice of a country walk do any of these broad human divisions cover such a case as that of secrecy of the political and party finances it would be absurd and even delightfully absurd to pretend that any of them did it would be a wild and charming fancy to suggest that our politicians keep political secrets only that they may make political revelations a modern peer only pretends that he has earned his peerage in order that he may more dramatically declare with a scream of scorn and joy that he really bought it the baronet pretends that he deserved his title only in order to make more exquisite and startling the grand historical fact that he did not deserve it 
Surely this sounds improbable. Surely all our statesmen cannot be saving themselves up for the excitement of a deathbed repentance. The writer of detective tales makes a man a duke solely in order to blast him with the charge of burglary. But surely the prime minister does not make a man a duke solely in order to blast him with the charge of bribery. No, the detective tale theory of the secrecy of political funds must, with a sigh, be given up. Neither can we say that the thing is explained by that second case of human secrecy which is so secret that it is hard to discuss in public. A decency is preserved about certain primary human matters, precisely because everyone knows all about them. But the decency touching contributions, purchases, and peerages is not kept up because most ordinary men know what is happening. It is kept up precisely because most ordinary men do not know what is happening. The ordinary curtain of decorum covers normal proceedings, but no one will say that being bribed is a normal proceeding. And if we apply the third test to this problem of political secrecy, the case is even clearer and even more funny. Surely no one will say that the purchase of peerages and such things are kept secret because they are so light and impulsive and unimportant that they must be matters of individual fancy. A child sees a flower and, for the first time, feels inclined to pick it. But surely no one will say that a brewer sees a coronet and for the first time suddenly thinks that he would like to be a peer. The child's impulse need not be explained to the police for the simple reason that it could not be explained to anybody. But does anyone believe that the laborious political ambitions of modern commercial men ever have this airy and incommunicable character? A man lying on the beach may throw stones into the sea without any particular reason. But does anyone believe that the brewer throws bags of gold into the party funds without any particular reason? This theory of the secrecy of political money must also be regretfully abandoned, and with it the two other possible excuses as well. This secrecy is one which cannot be justified as a sensational joke, nor as a common human freemasonry, nor as an indescribable personal whim. Strangely enough, indeed, it violates all three conditions and classes at once. It is not hidden in order to be revealed. It is hidden in order to be hidden. It is not kept secret because it is a common secret of mankind, but because mankind must not get hold of it. And it is not kept secret because it is too unimportant to be told, but because it is much too important to bear telling. In short, the thing we have is the real and perhaps rare political phenomenon of an occult government. We have an exoteric and esoteric doctrine. England is really ruled by priestcraft, but not by priests. We have in this country all that has ever been alleged against the evil side of religion, the peculiar class with privileges, the sacred words that are unpronounceable, the important things known only to the few. In fact, we lack nothing except the religion. Edward the Seventh and Scotland I have received a serious, and to me at any rate, an impressive remonstrance from the Scottish Patriotic Association. It appears that I recently referred to Edward the Seventh of Great Britain and Ireland, King Defender of the Faith, under the horrible description of the King of England. 
the scottish patriotic association draws my attention to the fact that by the provisions of the act of union and the tradition of nationality the monarch should be referred to as the king of britain the blow thus struck at me is particularly wounding because it is particularly unjust i believe in the reality of the independent nationalities under the british crown much more passionately and positively than any other educated Englishman of my acquaintance believes in it. I am quite certain that Scotland is a nation. I am quite certain that nationality is the key of Scotland. I am quite certain that all our success with Scotland has been due to the fact that we have in spirit treated it as a nation. I am quite certain that Ireland is a nation. I am quite certain that nationality is the key to Ireland. I am quite certain that all our failure in Ireland arose from the fact that we would not, in spirit, treat it as a nation. It would be difficult to find, even among the innumerable examples that exist, a stronger example of the immensely superior importance of sentiment to what is called practicality than this case of the two sister nations. It is not that we have encouraged a Scotchman to be rich. It is not that we have encouraged a Scotchman to be active, and it is not that we have encouraged a Scotchman to be free. It is that we have quite definitely encouraged a Scotchman to be Scotch. A vague but vivid impression was received from all our writers of history, philosophy, and rhetoric that the Scottish element was something really valuable in itself, was something which even Englishmen were forced to recognize and respect if we ever admitted the beauty of ireland it was as something which might be loved by an englishman but which could hardly be respected even by an irishman a scotchman might be proud of scotland it was enough for an irishman that he could be fond of ireland our success with the two nations has been exactly proportioned to our encouragement of their independent national emotion the one that we would not treat nationally has alone produced nationalists the one nation that we would not recognize as a nation in theory is the one that we have been forced to recognize as a nation in arms. The Scottish Patriotic Association has no need to draw my attention to the importance of the separate national sentiment or the need of keeping the border as a sacred line. The case is quite sufficiently proved by the positive history of Scotland. The place of Scottish loyalty to England has been taken by English admiration of Scotland. They do not need to envy us our titular leadership when we seem to envy them their separation. I wish to make very clear my entire sympathy with the national sentiment of the Scottish Patriotic Association, but I wish also to make clear this very enlightening comparison between the fate of Scotch and of Irish patriotism. In life it is always the little facts that express the large emotions. And if the English once respected Ireland as they respect Scotland, it would come out in a hundred small ways. For instance, there are crack regiments in the British Army which wear the kilt, the kilt which, as Macaulay says with perfect truth, was regarded by nine Scotchmen out of ten as the dress of a thief. The Highland officers carry a silver-hilted version of the old barbarous Gaelic broadsword with a basket hilt, which split the skulls of so many English soldiers Ed Killy Cranky and Preston Pans. When you have a regiment of men in the British Army carrying ornamental silver shillelaghs, you will have done the same thing for Ireland and not before. Or when you mention Brian Boru with the same intonation, 
as Bruce. Let me be considered, therefore, to have made quite clear that I believe with a quite special intensity in the independent consideration of Scotland and Ireland as apart from England. I believe that, in the proper sense of the words, Scotland is an independent nation, even if Edward VII is the King of Scotland. I believe that, in the proper sense of the words, Ireland is an independent nation, even if Edward VII is King of Ireland. But the fact is that I have an even bolder and wilder belief than either of these. I believe that England is an independent nation. I believe that England also has its independent color and history and meaning. I believe that England could produce costumes quite as queer as the kilt. I believe that England has heroes fully as untranslatable as Brian Boru, and consequently I believe that Edward VII is, among his innumerable other functions, really King of England. If my Scotch friends insist, let us call it one of his quite obscure, unpopular, and minor titles, one of his relaxations. A little while ago he was Duke of Cornwall, but for a family accident he might still have been King of Hanover. Nor do I think that we should blame the simple Cornishmen if they spoke of him in a rhetorical moment by his Cornish title, nor the well-meaning Hanoverians if they classed him with the Hanoverian princes. Now it so happens that in the passage complained of, I said the King of England merely because I meant the King of England. I was speaking strictly and especially of English kings, of kings in the tradition of the old kings of England. I wrote as an English nationalist, keenly conscious of the sacred boundary of the Tweed that keeps, or used to keep, our ancient enemies at bay. I wrote as an English nationalist, resolved for one wild moment to throw off the tyranny of the Scotch and Irish who govern and oppress my country. I felt that England was at least spiritually guarded against those surrounding nationalities. I dreamed that the Tweed was guarded by the ghosts of Scropes and Percy's. I dreamed that St. George's Channel was guarded by St. George, and in this insular security I spoke deliberately and specifically of the King of England, of the representative of the Tudors and Plantagenets. It is true that the two kings of England, of whom I especially spoke, Charles II and George III, had both an alien origin, not very recent and not very remote. Charles II came of a family originally Scotch. George III came of a family originally German. But the same, so far as that goes, could be said of the English royal houses when England stood quite alone. The Plantagenets were originally a French family. The Tudors were originally a Welsh family. But I was not talking of the amount of English sentiment in the English kings. I was talking of the amount of English sentiment in the English treatment and popularity of the English kings. With that, Ireland and Scotland have nothing whatever to do. Charles II may, for all I know, have not only been King of Scotland, he may by virtue of his temper and ancestry have been a Scotch King of Scotland. There was something Scotch about his combination of clear-headedness with sensuality. There was something Scotch about his combination of doing what he liked with knowing what he was doing. But I was not talking of the personality of Charles, which may have been Scotch. I was talking of the popularity of Charles, which was certainly English. One thing is quite certain, whether or no he ever ceased to be a Scotch man, he ceased as soon as he conveniently could to be a Scotch king. 
He had actually tried the experiment of being a national ruler north of the Tweed, and his people liked him as little as he liked them. A Presbyterianism of the Scottish religion, he left on record the exquisitely English judgment that it was no religion for a gentleman. His popularity then was purely English, his royalty was purely English, and I was using the words with the utmost narrowness and deliberation when I spoke of this particular popularity and royalty as the popularity and royalty of a king of England. I said of the English people especially that they like to pick up the king's crown when he has dropped it. I do not feel at all sure that this does apply to the Scotch or the Irish. I think that the Irish would knock his crown off for him. I think that the Scotch would keep it for him after they had picked it up. For my part, I should be inclined to adopt quite the opposite method of asserting nationality. Why should good Scottish nationalists call Edward the Seventh the King of Britain? They ought to call him King Edward I of Scotland. What is Britain? Where is Britain? There is no such place. There never was a nation of Britain, and there never was a king of Britain, unless, perhaps, Vortigern, Uther Pendragon, had a taste for the title. If we are to develop our monarchy... I should be altogether in favor of developing it along the line of local patriotism and of local proprietorship in the king. I think that the Londoners ought to call him the king of London, and the Liverpudilians ought to call him the king of Liverpool. I do not go so far as to say that the people of Birmingham ought to call Edward the Seventh the king of Birmingham, for that would be high treason to a holier and more established power. But I think we might read in the papers the King of Brighton left Brighton at half-past two this afternoon, and then immediately afterwards the King of Worthing entered Worthing at ten minutes past three, or the people of Margate bade a reluctant farewell to the popular King of Margate this morning, and then His Majesty the King of Ramsgate returned to his country and capital this afternoon after his long sojourn in strange lands. It might be pointed out that, by a curious coincidence, the departure of the King of Oxford occurred a very short time before the triumphal arrival of the King of Reading. I cannot imagine any method which would more increase the kindly and normal relations between the sovereign and his people. Nor do I think that such a method would be, in any sense, the deprecation of the royal dignity. For, as a matter of fact, it would put the king upon the same platform with the gods. The saints, the most exalted of human figures, were also the most local it was exactly the men whom we most easily connected with heaven whom we also most easily connected with earth. End of section 5